Hello, you're listening to Red Flag Radio. We record this show on Indigenous land, land that was stolen and never ceded, that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. My name's Ros Ward, proud to be the host of Red Flag Radio, and I'm joined by Liam on the um, on mm-hmm. the dials, yep. as they say in radio. <laughs> Hello, Liam. Hi, I'm on the mouse, actually, not a dial. It's been on the many mouse. decades since these yeah. had dials, I think. <laughs> on the mouse, yeah. And this is episode number 73 of our podcast, um, proudly revolutionary socialist podcast in Australia. And if you're interested in listening to our back catalogue, hopefully you can figure out how to find them all. And I was just looking back at some of the episodes we'd done in 2020 about the COVID crisis. We've talked about this before. We've talked about uh, the catastrophe in India earlier this year. We've talked about the health crisis in Australian hospitals. And actually when we um, had Ellie, who's back with us today on our show last year, we talked about defending the right to protest in New South Wales during uh, the pandemic. And that's going to come up again in today's discussion, I think, about um, the protests against the lockdown and what we think about that. So really keen to have this discussion um, with both of our guests and happy to welcome Josh Lees for the first time on Red Flag Radio. Welcome, Josh. Hello. Thanks for having me. Big fan of your work. (laughs) Thank you. And Josh is a regular contributor to Red Flag. So this podcast is obviously the sibling podcast of Red Flag newspaper and Ellie as well. And both of them are based in Sydney and currently in their homes, hoping that the Wi-Fi holds out for this recording, uh, as everyone in Sydney, I'm sure, is very much relying on their internet access right now. We've um, we've been covering in Red Flag newspaper, I mean, all of the debates around COVID. And most recently, Josh has written about the anti-lockdown protests and the headline anti-lockdown lunacy from the elites to the streets. And we're going to talk about the anti-lockdown protests and just generally what the fuck is going on with the pandemic in Australia. And so in that uh, light, I'm just going to say right now that it's Saturday the 31st of July at 4.20pm and um, things can change very rapidly as we've seen during the pandemic and may have changed since um, we recorded this to the time that you're listening to this. So uh, just a caveat in case we need it. Okay, let's get into it. Ellie, welcome back to Red Flag Radio. Thanks, Roz. Nice to be back. And let's just have a bit of an overview of the context. I mean, what's the – and we have international listeners who are in very different COVID situations, but in terms of Australia, in terms of New South Wales where you are, What's kind of an outline of the current situation? Yeah, well, after months of the virus being effectively eliminated from Australia, uh, the federal Liberal government has now let COVID back in, uh, first through their leaky quarantine system, which has been organised through hotels uh, rather than purpose-built facilities. Uh, They've allowed it to spread easily because of their botched uh, vaccination program. And then the state Liberal government here in New South Wales, the Berejiklian government, uh, they failed to suppress the outbreak. Uh, They refused to lock down fast enough. uh, And when they did lock down, they haven't done it hard enough. 
So Sydney's now been in a lockdown for about five weeks. Uh, despite this, cases are still tracking up, not down. Uh, there are currently more than, it was announced today, more than 3,000 active cases here right now, 202 new ones added on today. Uh, and tragically, 14 people have died in this outbreak. So 14 people uh, who definitely did not have to die uh, have done so because of uh, the government's failings. And then there's dozens more uh, in intensive care fighting for their lives. So I just want to reiterate, um, this really did not need to happen. There's been a very public widespread growing recognition uh, that the quarantine system here has not been working. Uh, there's been actually more than a dozen leaks uh, in the last six months. And with the Delta variant uh, finally arriving here, it's just um, overpowered that system. Um, even in saying that, though, there have been other similar outbreaks in other states, like uh, you guys down in Victoria were in a lockdown recently as well. Um, but it's the failed strategy that the government here in New South Wales has uh, pursued on a number of different counts, really, uh, that has got us to this situation. So partial, partial and targeted lockdowns uh, as though COVID knows to stop at the end of a local government area uh, that Berejiklian tells it to. Uh, they've also done things like allow businesses to decide whether or not they were essential rather than asserting uh, which businesses must shut down. Uh, and they've also failed to provide the kind of necessary economic support that can actually allow people uh, to stay at home and stay safe. And, you know, all of this is added to by the terrible vaccination program, the lowest in the OECD. Uh, yeah, so a lot of errors have been made over the past couple of months. But I think to sum up the situation right now, we're in a potentially quite dangerous situation here in Sydney, uh, which is actually putting the entire country at risk um, of more Delta outbreaks. Yeah. And and that thing about, you know, um, what's been allowed to remain open, I think it's been something that's shocked us in Victoria, but also probably, you know, the, the fact that Bunnings is still open, is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. And other places like, you know, and, and the answering of that question when the Premier of New South Wales is asked, what can you just tell us what's essential means and she just says essential means essential <laughs> like <laughs> yeah. okay yeah sorry yeah. In the first few weeks of the lockdown the designer stores in the middle of the city were open apparently a $1,500 handbag uh, is an essential commodity according to the government mm. here yeah so a very frustrating situation and if we think about the politics of all of this Josh like what what are the priorities here like are do they prioritize or how do you see it? I mean, are they prioritising people's health? 14 people have died and people are on, you know, life support currently. Or are they prioritising profits? And I guess we probably know a bit of that answer. But, like, it can sometimes seem like things have shifted towards health. But what's happening now, do you think? I think what we've seen consistently um, from – you know, at least the New South Wales and federal governments, um, you could probably apply a lot of this to other state governments too at various points, but has been, yeah, as you alluded to, a consistent prioritisation of profits over health, um, which has manifested itself in a whole uh, series of policies. So like uh, Ellie's touched on a whole bunch of the key ones, really. But if we cast our minds back to uh, even when the virus was uh, first coming to Australia and spreading around and so on, Let's not forget that Scott Morrison, who is a more recent, uh, has had to kind of uh, change tunes a lot 
and now admit that lockdowns are necessary, but this has not been their stance all the way through. So last year, Morrison uh, infamously failed to uh, take any measures to protect people in aged care facilities. He uh, you know, went to the footy to have a beer um, with 10,000 people just the day before lockdowns were coming into place um, to really show that he was, uh, you know, which side he was really on on this whole debate. Um, he said that the best protection against the virus is to live with the virus and to open up your economy. That was his stance mm. um, last year, and that's been the consistent stance of uh, not just the federal government but the New South Wales government is that that has been their entire uh, inclination all the way through. Um, so that's played out more recently uh, in the way that um, Eleanor talked about. So here, uh, as it was just becoming obvious that this highly contagious strain, the Delta strain of this virus, was becoming more and more established uh, in the community to begin with in the very wealthy eastern suburbs, uh, they did nothing. You know, they sat on their hands, waited till it got bigger and bigger, this spread, and then did a very half-assed um, lockdown. Uh, but, you know, and, and in the end, when they have had to shift, um, both federally and at a state level, it's been with extreme reluctance, always much too slow to respond and always just gambling with people's health. So we've had a whole... A series of more minor outbreaks in New South Wales, which the New South Wales government has dealt with in a similar laissez-faire kind of way. And they've been, you know, pretty lucky up till now that we haven't seen, uh, you know, greater outbreaks as a result of that. But it's been a consistent policy of gambling with our health, putting profits first, refusing to shut down businesses, and relying on a testing and tracing um, approach, uh, which, and, and, you know, isolation and so on. And that has worked up until now, but it's been, as I said, a consistent gamble. And this time it hasn't worked with the more contagious variant, which they knew was coming. Uh, and so it's just been an utter disaster um, now where we've got hundreds and hundreds of cases spread uh, now from the wealthy eastern suburbs now into the core of the working class in the western and southwestern suburbs of Sydney. Um, and this has been as a, a result of their whole priorities, uh, which we've talked about, profits first, health last, um, and when they have acted, always too slow and so on. Mm. And so p people are pretty pissed off in New South Wales. Well, that's the impression that you get um, about mostly the fact that they haven't locked down harder. So the polls are still showing big support for lockdowns, but the government is still, it doesn't seem like they want to increase restrictions or go harder. And instead they keep talking about, um, you know, the, the road out of this is vaccines. Ellie, what do you think about all of that? Yeah, well, they have been forced to slowly increase restrictions as the weeks have gone on. I think largely because of that public pressure that you mentioned that is kind of palpable here in Sydney right now, and also because the lockdown light approach just hasn't been working. Like I said, cases are still uh, ticking up. We hit over 200 a day for the first time this week, which was a month into the lockdown. But it's also worth saying that things um, are also tending a little in the other direction. So the, the ban on construction uh, that was placed a couple of weeks ago is about to be lifted uh, in all but eight of the key local government areas. And also, uh, and particularly concerningly, uh, the government has announced they're going to try and send all Year 12 students back to school uh, on the 16th of August so they can complete their HSE. But the, the teachers' union here put out information that said uh, a quarter of all cases in this outbreak have been amongst people under the age of 19. Most of them, the vast majority of those people will not be fully vaccinated uh, in two, three weeks' time. 
We know internationally that Delta has been hitting younger people harder than some of the other variants. Uh, So this is putting them, those students, their families, uh, as well as teachers, quite seriously at risk. But I think a lot of people have been wondering the question that you asked, why won't they shut down harder? I think it's a little hard to answer, but the political context that Josh talked about is important, right? So it's a right-wing liberal state government here. It's led by Gladys Berejiklian, who for 12 months has been uh, helping to lead the anti-lockdown charge in Australia. She's heavily criticised other states for their snap lockdowns, lined up alongside Morrison in calling for state borders to be open, uh, to just use testing and tracing to manage outbreaks and just, uh, you know, maintained the whole way through that the virus can be managed through other measures. So already they've had to do something of a backflip in implementing this lockdown, but it flies in the face of everything that they have been saying for months, which actually lines up way more with how politicians and bosses have responded internationally. Australia has still very much been the exception, I think, because there's been such a big public push here that uh, we don't want the bodies to pile high um, and we want lockdowns to stop that from happening. Um, but the, you know, the idea that they're going to go, that they were going to go as hard as Victoria did early on, I think is just not in the playbook um, of this government and kind of indicates why they've been or explains why they continue to drag their feet week after week after week, even though they're currently pursuing a failed strategy. And then the vaccination program, I think partly that's um, about trying to shift some blame onto the federal government. In my opinion, blame should be heavily heaped onto both governments, but the federal government's responsible for the vaccination program. And I think they want to see it as the, you know, as the panacea that will allow profits to flow again, everything to open, not to have to worry about the virus anymore, uh, kind of like what's happening around the world in the UK and so on. There's this, in my opinion, something of a fantasy that we just get to a certain rate of vaccinations, the one that they're suggesting is worryingly low, 70%, and they won't have to worry about restricting businesses anymore. Mm. And that's 70% of over 18-year-olds, like you said. The Delta strain seems to be impacting young people, children, uh, much more as well. So, yeah. Our across the world. We'll talk about that roadmap to freedom, I think, uh, a little bit later as well. But there is a minority who are agitating hard against lockdowns. Um, And this is not just an Australian thing, but last weekend we had these so-called freedom rallies, which is interesting when you think about the roadmap to freedom and then these people who are organising freedom rallies using the same languages as uh, Scott Morrison, the Prime Minister here. But mm. um, so you wrote about these protests. You've had a close look at them, Josh. What, what's, the char- what's the actual character of the people involved and how significant is this? Um, were these protests? Yeah, well, we saw thousands of people out um, in Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, quite sizable, uh, given the context and everything. I think we've got to understand them as uh, very right-wing protests. Um, so the core demands are to end the lockdown for so-called freedom and heaps of anti-vaccination uh, you know, arguments and demands and so on being put. 
Um, and I'll go into that a bit more, but it's worth saying to begin with, which gives you a sense of what these things are really about, uh, is that if these demands were met, we've got to understand what that would actually mean. That would mean the virus being absolutely allowed to just let rip uh, through Australian society. It would mean thousands and thousands of people getting COVID. Very quickly, we'd be seeing you know, thousands of cases per day. We'd be seeing hundreds and hundreds in hospital, and we'd be seeing the same kind of you know horrific situation that we um, have tragically had to witness in country after country around the world with thousands and thousands and thousands of people dying from COVID, people contracting, you know, long COVID, all the horrors um, that we know that this disease has inflicted upon people and in particular poor people and in particular the working class um, all around the world. So that should be our starting point, I think, when we assess these demonstrations is that their actual demands are to unleash mass death upon the population. Um, and when we look uh, behind the more I suppose, political aspects of the slogans. I mean, they're all political, but you see all the kind of right-wing lunacy that um, has come to characterise, you know, uh, recent far-right uh, demonstrations and movements around the world. So heaps of uh, just conspiracy theory, anti-science kind of garbage. Um, you know, so heaps of the placards, for example, aren't just about, you know, freedom and whatever. There's also all the stuff about, you know, COVID's a hoax and um, you know, stop poisoning our kids with vaccines and um, a lot of kind of religious fundamentalist right-wing stuff. So, like, I think one of the most um, blatant was like, the blood of Christ is my vaccine, other slogans like this. So you get a sense of um, what these demonstrations are like. Of course, basically no one at them is wearing masks, which tells you a bit of their political character as well. It's the kind of stuff I think that we'd be used to seeing more associate with the kind of Trumpian far-right rallies in the United States. I think it's that kind of politics, um, which has been mobilised on the streets um, in Sydney, last in Melbourne and Brisbane last weekend. And this does come on the back of a series of anti-vaccination protests, actually, that have taken place with all you know very similar uh, politics and slogans and so on. Um, yeah, so I think uh, a lot of people have criticised the demonstrations just for the fact that they took place and uh, that they are of themselves, you know, uh, potentially mass spreaders of COVID and that kind of thing. And that's fair enough that people, you know, who are locked down can look at these and think, you know, why are you doing that? But I think it's, we need to more understand what they are politically because I think the real danger doesn't come so much from these protests themselves spreading a lot of COVID, um, but from their political demands that they're raising if they were to be taken up by government, and we know there's many in the government, which we might come to later, who are inclined to take them up, as we've alluded to, if they were to be taken up, this would unleash, you know, mass death upon uh, the working class and particularly, you know, vulnerable communities, older people, people with existing conditions, Aboriginal people, migrants, and so on. So um, that's what these demonstrations are, I think. They're these uh, right-wing movement of, uh, you know, conspiracy theorists uh, and people who don't give a damn about society, about other people's health, uh, and so on, mm. and the fact that the you know there were, I think was Alan Jones at the one in Sydney. Did I read that? And George Christensen was certainly the MP um, in Queensland. Was at a pro protest on the same day in Mackay in Queensland. Um, yeah. And you know, supporting those demands, which is the thing mm. that you're saying is, um, pretty horrifying right wing. Uh, same position as Boris Johnson used to have about, um, you know, we're just going to have to see tens of thousands of people die um, and that's just the way it is and we don't care because they're working class people um, largely. So, yeah, I mean, 
it's a it's a horrifying um, thing to think about uh, if those demands were met. But there has been some surprising responses to this um, from people who would be characterised as part of the left. Um, and Ellie, I wonder if you could talk about that because it's partly based on some of the placards and some of the images. Usually uh, people of colour and particular placards that refer to like Western Sydney and to say that maybe we should be more sympathetic to working class people who might have been attending these protests. What do you think about some of those arguments or can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, we can't know the exact class composition of the rallies. I don't think you can know that unless you go there and speak to everyone. I think we should be very sceptical of the dominant narrative in the media, which is also being repeated by much on the left, that this was the working class of Western Sydney. Uh, Firstly, we know that very similar protests elsewhere, like the ones in Melbourne, uh, the ones across Europe, Germany, France, etc., that Josh referred to and that this protest in Sydney very much uh, fitted the mould of, uh, have had a very middle-class character. It's the small business owners, uh, all the rest of them, who say that lockdown hurts their businesses, hurts their profits. Also, I think Western Sydney is often incorrectly just used synonymously as a term for the working class, which is wrong. Western Sydney also has a, a very class composition itself. Despite that, though, I think no doubt there were some workers at these rallies. There have been some workers at most right-wing rallies, but I still think we should judge them based on their politics, the politics that Josh went through, anti-vax, anti-lockdown, pro-business, and if followed, uh, would kill a lot of people, would kill millions of people. The speeches at the rally, uh, which could be heard through the live streams, uh, they were all about the vaccinations, uh, no vaccinations. They were about the lockdowns, ending the lockdowns, uh, and overwhelmingly about how all these measures um, are hurting businesses. They weren't speeches um, calling for economic support for workers, increased welfare payments, uh, and all the rest of it, which is what you would expect if it was some kind of working class rebellion. So I think while we shouldn't be cheering on or supporting the police crackdown of the demonstrations, the left should be loudly opposed to them as representing a kind of politics that's endangering the lives of millions of people um, and mainly workers. And I think the fact that a lot of the left have either supported or kind of hesitantly supported or only very hesitantly opposed these rallies is a reflection of much of the left's incorrect attitude towards um, the public health response to COVID. So much of the left has been against lockdowns. Much of the left has been uh, against the border closures, which are some of the measures absolutely necessary to try and stop the pandemic destroying people's lives um, here in this country and have proved to be the kind of last line of defence against COVID. So I think a lot of that has been wrapped up with you know, 18 months of incorrect attitudes, ideas, positions on the left towards the pandemic. Yeah, and I wonder if you could just add to that in terms of that argument from the start has really been that lockdown is too hard for ordinary people to endure, so there has to be some other thing that we can do. What would you say to that? I would say that we definitely need lockdowns to stop people from dying 
Um, but within those lockdowns, we should also be demanding that the government takes measures to make sure that people's lives aren't adversely affected by the lockdown. So um, everyone should be provided with adequate economic support payments, which we still do not have in New South Wales. What they've offered is a payment that's below the minimum wage. Uh, we should be demanding that welfare payments um, are increased for people. All those extra kind of um, economic demands, welfare demands, um, to go alongside lockdowns means that you can protect both the health and lives of people around the country, but then also make sure uh, people don't suffer economically. Mm. Yeah, my, my my answer to that would be, yeah, they are hard, but um, there's no reason why they have to be as hard as they are. Like, don't make them as hard, you, you know, provide what people need to be able to survive lockdown so that they can be um, – really intense and tackle the virus and then end it and the public health, uh, yeah. you know, provided as much as needed and people given enough money to easily survive through lockdown. That's the problem, not the lockdown itself. So, yeah, yeah and take been- a look at the UK, take a look at India. That is a lot, lot, lot harder than what anyone in Sydney is going through right now. Yeah. So, um, Josh, you talk about them the protest being a, a sort of horrifying spectacle and I guess you know we're a revolutionary socialist podcast we try to apply a Marxist perspective um, in analyzing historical events and current events and debates like what would be the you know is there a material basis and I think some people around the left have argued this as well like the, there is a material basis for anti-lockdown sentiment among working class people because of what we were just saying it's hard so is there any element of that within these protests, do you think? I think the starting point should be to remember what uh, Eleanor talked about earlier, that there is still overwhelming mass support for the lockdown continuing in Sydney. Um, in fact, the most recent poll I saw said that uh, not only was there a big majority in support of the lockdown, but that 56% of people said that the government should have locked down earlier, which is just pretty bloody obvious. Um, so... That's important. The mass of the working class supports lockdowns. And in fact, that's uh, been crucial the whole way through, actually, to preventing um, the liberals and big business and so on uh, doing what they would have liked to do earlier, which is just to let the virus rip more along the lines of what we've seen around the world. They haven't been able to do that, at least partly through mass um, public pressure. Um, to the extent there's uh, like a material basis to these rallies, well, yeah, I mean, uh, Eleanor's talked about obviously the government should massively increase the uh, ability and the funding and the support um, for people to stay home and they could easily afford to do that. Like the billionaires in Australia have increased their wealth by I think it's around 11% just in the last year. Um, they're about to hand out massive tax cuts to the rich again. Mm-hmm. So there's no doubt about all of that. But I think the key, uh, we can't understand these these protests as like working class mobilizations, again, as Eleanor talked about. Not that there aren't any workers on them, but that's not exactly their class character at all. Um, they're a whole cross-class thing. There's many like wealthy people who travelled from the eastern suburbs and the northern suburbs um, who went to these protests just because they're like far-right activists and so on. So in terms of a material basis, I think the key one really is the one that we've touched on earlier, which is uh, that actually these kinds of anti-lockdown and in many cases even uh, anti-vaccine ideas have actually been spread by the elite in our society, by the Murdoch press, by the right-wing political parties around the world, by business lobby groups. 
um, all the way through. I mean, you referred um, before to Boris Johnson's infamous um, quote that came out of those leaked cabinet papers where he said, you know, no more effing lockdowns, let the bodies pile high. Well, that's the attitude that's being taken to the streets now um, by these, uh, you know, people and these, you know, many of them associated with the far right. So that's, um, I think, what we're seeing now, just the, the what has been the mainstay of a lot of kind of bourgeois and, you know, mainstream opinion um, now just being given a slightly more extreme edge and a street character. And that's often the way with the far right. They take existing mainstream bourgeois ideas of social hierarchies, of bigoted ideas, of racism and nationalism and take it to an extreme. That's basically what fascism is. Um, and we're kind of seeing that now, I think, as well. So I think we've got to see it, again, politically, primarily as a result of a growth in far right um, politics in certain sections of society, uh, not understand it primarily as um, this is like a working class response to the difficulties of lockdowns or anything. Because, And after all, we've got to remember, the biggest attack on the working class would be the ending of lockdowns. That is the, would be the biggest attack. That would mean thousands of workers dying. Mm. Um, so, yeah. Mm. And and it's not just the right-wing media that back up those ideas. I mean, lots of people have made this observation, but watching ABC news coverage, and actually probably Liam Ward does that. <laughs> I know you always have News 24 on in your yeah, house. But, yeah. like, so you'll have noticed every single person that they interview, almost every single person, has been a small business owner to say, yeah. it's really hard for me, we're losing money, my business might go under. So the material basis for that is petty bourgeois, middle class, small business owners and big business owners, you know, um, complaining about the impact on their profit margins. Mm -hmm. So that, again, plays into the anti-lockdown um, arguments just in a more palatable ABC fashion. Liam, back me up on this one. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I didn't even know there were so many bloody cafes uh, in Australia, but apparently there are, and ABC found every single one of them to interview. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, okay, so let's think about some of the alternatives and what might happen next. Um, Ellie, if you were able to take charge of the situation in New South Wales or in Australia even, what what do you think should be happening right now? Look, at this stage of the outbreak, I think there's absolutely no alternative to maintaining and actually hardening the lockdown. I think we need to keep Greater Sydney locked down until the virus is no longer spreading in the community. Uh, and also the state borders should be slammed shut. So the potential disaster in Sydney doesn't actually become... Uh, a national emergency. But in addition to that, there's actually so much more that federal and state governments, well, first of all, could have done to stop us getting here in the first place, like I kind of started with. So the purpose-built quarantine facilities out of the city, uh, uh, facilities out of the city so that uh, the leaks and outbreaks don't happen in the first place, actually carrying out a successful centrally organised mass vaccination program so fewer people are at risk of contracting the virus, passing it on, getting severely sick or even dying from it. And then I think there's a lot more that should be done to support people through this lockdown, like we started talking about a bit before. So obviously economic support. If people do not have economic support from the government, 
they are um, either at risk of poverty, homelessness, or the rest of it, or they will be incapable um, of staying home. If they lose their job, they'll go and seek out another one because at the end of the day, people need to pay rent, need to put food on the table and all the rest of it. So payments should not be below the minimum wage. Centrelink should not be at the appallingly low poverty levels uh, that it's currently at. We know that money is there to provide economic support for people. Billionaires in this country doubled their wealth during the pandemic. It's just a it's been a political decision not to tax that money uh, and pass it on to ordinary people to survive this lockdown. And in addition to that, there's so many other little things you could do. Like um, one of my friends is a teacher and she says one of the biggest issues with her and her students in lockdown is a lack of access to in- the internet or to devices. If you have five kids in one house and three computers, then you know not all of them are going to be able to keep studying all week. So the government should be providing free internet, free devices to all school students. There should be centralised free delivery services for food uh, and other essential items so that fewer people need to interact with one another in supermarkets uh, and all of that. I think if your starting point for trying to organise a pandemic response was simply how do we keep uh, everyone safe and how do we keep everyone looked after, there are so, so, so many different measures that you can come up with almost instantly Uh, to allow that to happen. But unfortunately, we live in a society where the people who make those decisions, their starting point isn't how do we keep everyone safe? How do we keep everyone looked after? Their starting point is uh, how do we stop businesses from losing money or how do we allow businesses to keep making profits? And, you know, workplaces being made safe um, is another thing there, improving ventilation and all the rest of it. So I guess in short, there is so, so, so much more that could be done First of all, to stop the uh, pandemic ripping through the community in the first place, uh, but then secondly, to look after people through these long weeks and long months of the lockdowns. Yep. And I think a lot of people are then saying, okay, um, who who should we be blaming for all of these fuck-ups? Like, And it goes backwards and forwards around the different state governments, the federal government, but the governments then say, no, no, it's not us. It's people who have been visiting their families in Western Sydney when they shouldn't have been, or the removalists who've been, you know, working across borders, even though they had all the right to do that and the permits and whatever. Um, so Josh, let's talk about that. Who, who should we be blaming? Well, yeah, we should blame the government first and foremost, uh, as we've talked about, how did this outbreak start? It started because they failed, you know, they stuffed up the quarantining system. They hadn't built proper facilities. They hadn't even taken the most basic step of making sure every worker associated with the quarantining process was vaccinated. So that was one of the um, key ways that the that we think anyway, from what we know, that the virus, this current outbreak uh, was spread. Then they waited week after week after week as it circulated and grew. Um, before they did anything like a lockdown. Then they allowed, continued to allow every business to remain open. So this supposed lockdown for the first uh, three weeks was a total joke and everyone knew it. Um, Where, you know, as Ellie said earlier, you could go to bloody Gucci or Louis Vuitton in Bondi Junction, Westfield, the place where the whole thing basically started and spread and still buy like $1,000 jewellery and handbags and so on. This was considered essential. So that is why the virus has spread and taken root. 
And now what we're seeing is the reason it's getting very hard to get under control is because uh, that there are, well, one big part of it is because there are thousands of essential workers um, who it's harder to just stop their work and lock down. Um, so that's one big aspect of it. So as I said, the virus spread from the eastern suburbs where it could have been contained relatively easily into the core of um, the working class in Western and Southwest Sydney. But then still, they're not doing anything to uh, make those workplaces safe where there genuinely are essential workplaces that need to remain functioning. So there's been no like mass like auditing of these workplaces for their health and safety um, standards, you know, campaigns to improve ventilation, to reduce staff numbers, to everywhere they possibly can um, shift things around to make it safer. As you said earlier, they haven't even shut things like Bunnings and forced them to do, you know, click and collect only and stuff like that. Um, and then there's still thousands and thousands of non-essential um, businesses open all across the place. So it's infuriating then for then, you know, every press conference they stand up and announce another day of failure. And what do they do? Of course, they want to point the finger um, at, you know, individuals' households. So their big thing has been blaming it on household spread. But if you dig beneath the kind of rhetoric, uh, it's pretty clear that the main way that that spreading is happening in households is because people are going to work, um, which they don't have a choice in. Um, they're going to work because their businesses are still open. If they don't go to work, they'll be sacked. Um, and they're catching the virus at work. So whether that's at supermarkets or at non-essential places that are still open or a whole bunch of smaller shops, which are some of the most unsafe at the moment because there's worse ventilation. And then they're taking the virus home and um, tragically giving it to their family members. So that's how the thing's spreading because of the failure of government. That's how it started. Um, and the attempt to really scapegoat people now goes, you know, it goes along with the government failure. So the more that everyone knows that the government failed, the more they want to try and blame it on others. So we've seen a higher um, visibility. You know, they always crapping on about, we're going to send in the cops. Now they're sending in the bloody military um, to walk around the streets. It's a purely symbolic act um, to try and blame the victims of their failures um, and make us kind of turn on the people of Western and Southwestern Sydney. Mm. Um, I think that people are not buying that. I think people, you know, hopefully will continue to put the blame at the feet of the government. But I think that's very important um, in the way forward. And even when it comes to understanding those right-wing protests we talk about, like, okay, yes, we should absolutely condemn them. They're absolutely antisocial, you know, dickheads going to those protests. But really the main enemy is the government still. And the main danger is if the government um, decides to let rip and open up the economy and give up on the lockdown, that will be the key thing that then, you know, leads to mass death. Mm. There was one moment where I thought the public health um, officer had become a socialist when she said that she they sort of realised that um, – you know, they needed to think about what to do with all the essential workers around Sydney, the genuinely essential workers, because if all those people stopped working, then everything in the whole city would grind to a halt. It's like, yes, this is our point about the working class and the power that we have collectively if we were to use it. And we haven't even talked about the failure of the unions in all of this. But, Ellie, let's finish here with um, what you think might happen next or this kind of roadmap to freedom, which I think is essentially um, parrots some of the language of the far-right protesters and Boris Johnson and so on. It's not looking good, is it, in terms of Australian politics? Yeah, I think there are definitely some uh, potentially dangerous paths ahead. One is a concern that Australia might end up following what has been the international norm of a COVID response, which is to essentially let it run rampant. 
um, kill heaps of people, hospitalise heaps mm. more, consign many thousands, many millions of people to long COVID, the full effects of which we still don't understand. I think it's not ruled out that that could eventuate here in Australia. Morrison's opening up plan is can be seen as something of a step in that direction. Like we discussed earlier, um, he's indicated that they will start loosening the COVID response at a 70% vaccination rate, which, as you point out, is not 70% of the entire population, which is in and of itself too low. It would be 55% of the general population, I think, which is kind of akin to uh, what they hit in the UK when uh, they started to seriously loosen restrictions. And we see how we can see how that's gone. Tens of thousands of new cases a day. Loads of those people will die. More of those will be hospitalised. More of those will get long COVID and so on. It's been an absolute disaster. And I think any steps in that direction here in Australia should absolutely be resisted. And I guess we have to uh, bank on the hope that the expectation that has been established here over the past 18 months, that we will not see loads and loads of people die can maintain itself as enough pressure uh, to stop that um, eventuating. But I think also you can see pressure in a few different directions. One is uh, with the situation here in Sydney right now, um, there'll be pressure within the Liberal Party to open up at some point. There will be pressure from small business owners, not just small business owners, also big business owners to open up at some point, like there was uh, growing at the end of the Melbourne lockdown last year. There was a threat at some point uh, that business would just flout the restrictions uh, and open up anyway. So I think that is definitely a danger here as well. But then there can be broader pressures um, as well here. So like prematurely opening international borders for various sectors like higher education, tourism, agricultural and so on. So we're definitely not out of the clear uh, in terms of the pandemic, uh, which is why still our main demand should be to uh, not let the thing get in and then if it does, uh, if there is an outbreak, to lock down uh, until it's been eliminated from the community. That's the only way that we can make sure that uh, people here will be safe. I think there's another danger that the far right in Australia could grow out of this, uh, like the rally on the weekend was certainly not a mass rally. That's important to recognise, but it was the biggest rally of the far right uh, that we've seen here in some years. Um, this issue internationally has coalesced different elements of the far right in addition to uh, kind of you know, anti-vax kooky politics and stuff like that, brought them all together into one kind of... Uh, political movement. There's already been kind of grumblings on the right of the Liberal Party and then people like George Christensen and so on. So this is uh, pretty fertile ground for the right to grow stronger and louder and become more mobilised. So I think that's something that we need to watch out for as well uh, and be prepared to mobilise against um, if and when the time comes. But on the other hand, I think there's... Um, things that left-wing people should do. Like it's not just, it's certainly not just a useless situation here. I think we need to be part of uh, building a political fight back in this country, which is quite clearly run by maniacs uh, who are prioritising profits over human lives. Uh, there's still stuff that we can do while in lockdown. Um, 
Socialist Alternative Sydney, our branch here, we've been hosting a whole lot of online meetings, online rallies uh, for people to tune into uh, and use the lockdown as an opportunity to learn a little bit more about politics, find out how to get involved and all of that. Uh, we're actually hosting a meeting um, on Sunday, the 8th of August online about uh, anti-fascist struggles throughout Australian history, which should be a good one. And then I think everyone needs to be ready to get involved with campaigning, political campaigning, uh, as soon as we return to the streets. We might need to fight for our right to protest again. We might need to be fighting the far right. We'll definitely need uh, to be fighting the, the Liberal government. So there's lots and lots of people to get involved in. And I think now, clearly internationally, it's a really, really important moment for more people to join that political fight back and join the socialist movement. Yeah, and certainly not a time to just sit back and watch um, without trying to get involved. And as you said, we'll put the details of some of the events happening um, for uh, socialists and people interested in socialist politics in Sydney, but obviously with online stuff, people can tune in from wherever you are. And remember to um, – there are some beginners or uh, introductory episodes of this podcast as well that are some of the uh, basic ideas of Marxism explained if you want to go back and check those out. Um, but, yeah, let's keep fighting. Josh and Ellie, thanks so much for being on Red Flag Radio. Thanks, Thanks for having us. Lockdown highlight. Yeah, (laughs) gives you something to do. Uh, (laughs) So you're listening to Red Flag Radio. We have a world to win.